Welcome to The Defiant Spirit, a podcast about discovering meaning, purpose, and resilience in the most challenging, difficult, and darkest moments of our lives through what my teacher and mentor, Dr. Viktor Frankl, called the defiant power of the human spirit, that spirit that is within you, that spirit that is calling to you, that spirit that is you. I'm Rabbi B. This is The Defiant Spirit, and now, on to our podcast. So welcome back to the Defiant Spirit, Rabbi Baruch Levi, Rabbi B here, and I am excited to continue the conversation of the Defiant Spirit with you. For those of you who just joined us, this is your first time with us in the Defiant Spirit. Um, for the past, I don't know, uh, 10 or so podcasts uh, on the Defiant Spirit, I've devoted it to conceptual framework for the Defiant Spirit. What is the Defiant Spirit? I've really been focused on Two of my primary pathways, Logotherapy, the work of Dr. Viktor Frankl, author of Man's Search for Meaning and founder of Logotherapy, a meaning-centered psychotherapy, philosophy, way of living, and Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. I'm also going to be shifting gears and talking more about um, the Enneagram because for me, that and I would say Buddhist mindfulness meditation practice, maybe yoga thrown in there, are kind of my primary ways of uh, showing up and operating in the world. And finding my way forward in life. So we will be talking a lot about the Enneagram, but I do want to continue um, talking about defiance and the nature of the work that I do in my own life and in guiding others, counseling um, clients to learn how to defy their circumstances. This is a central, if not the central um, theme or thesis of logotherapy, of Dr. Frankel's work. And that is that we are never um, imprisoned. It doesn't matter what we are going through. He's, he wrote this and developed this in the Holocaust. So all the more so for our prisons that are uh, probably far less trying oftentimes than, than that. And that we are, not, um, we are not bound to those circumstances. We are not stuck in those circumstances, no matter what they are. And I wanna to talk today about being stuck, getting stuck, getting imprisoned. Uh, I think it was Mandela who said, you know, he was imprisoned, but he was never imprisoned. And that's really stuck with me. And it's why I um, study Frankl so deeply. And I'm such a devout practitioner of logotherapy and helping other people break through their, their circumstances, not becoming victims of those circumstances, getting unstuck, to say it simply. And that's what I want to talk today about, getting unstuck from the routines that we end up getting stuck in, from the creations in our mind uh, that we're stuck in from the seeming outside circumstances that we get stuck within, but we aren't stuck unless we forfeit our right to choose to get unstuck. So we'll talk more about that, but I want to share with you this beautiful and tragic story told by um, mindfulness teacher Tara Brock. And it's a true story. I looked it up. It took place a few years back in the Washington, D.C. National Zoo. And she writes about it, I believe, in Radical Acceptance. I forgot where I found it, but I did find it. And she talks about a regal white tiger named Mohini. And Mohini um, was born in captivity. He, he was born and raised in the lion house at the National Zoo. I'm just going to read for you. 
It was a typical 12 by 12 foot cage with iron bars and a cement floor. Mohini spent her days pacing restlessly back and forth in her cramped quarters. Eventually, biologists and staff worked together to create a natural habitat for her. Covering several acres, it had hills, trees, a pond, and variety of vegetation. With excitement and anticipation, they released Mohini into her new and expansive environment. But it was too late. The tiger immediately sought refuge in a corner of the compound where she lived for the remainder of her life. Mohini paced and paced in that corner until an area 12 by 12 feet was worn bare of grass. I, I just think this image hit me so hard when I read it because we are all Mohini at different times in different ways. And we have unlimited potential. We have unlimited resources within us. Um, if you're here, if you're above ground, if you have you know, another day of life, the possibilities and potential for, for love, for giving, for sharing, for receiving, are infinite. But how much of our lives are really lived in this kind of infinite, limitless capacity, this place of spirit that we will always keep coming back to, that's at the center of so many great traditions, spiritual traditions, psychotherapeutic traditions, like, like um, logotherapy. For Frankel, it was called the, the nuos, the noetic, that place within us, the, the spirit that is not bound by our mind, our psyche, by our soma, our body, by the rules of the universe, by the limitations of reality, but is infinite. And I did a whole podcast on this, the, the divine uh, Kabbalistic um, term for this is Yah, which is one of the names of God. And Yah is um, found in all great mystical traditions, deities' names, Krishna, Buddha, Allah, Yeshua, which was Jesus in uh, the original. And that yah sound is a expansiveness. It's it's an infinity. Ah, say it with me. Ah, go back and listen to that podcast. We are here to live our yah, our divinity, our infinite nature, and yet we end up as Mohini in so many different ways, with that expansive, that limitless possibility around us, and we get stuck in our habits, in our routines, in our ruts that was uh, once i think i read or i was told a routine is simply a rut that we end up in and a rut is only a grave with both ends knocked out i think it was earl nightingale actually teacher of mine so we end up in this place of stuck because no matter how limitless the external circumstances are or the external you know the um the possibilities in this world are circumstances, things outside of us start pounding us, start pushing us, people and situations, you know, realities out there start pushing us into our corner. We allow ourselves to be pushed into our corner. Truth is nobody pushes us anywhere. We allow ourselves to be corralled, to be told this is our little space, our little 12 by 12 foot place to pace in this world. I, um, Went through this in my own life for many years. I, growing up, didn't do well in tests. I didn't do well in um, standardized tests. I think I talked about it in a previous podcast on the ACT. I did very poorly. I, I wish I could remember that number or find those scores because they 
I just remember it was bad, or at least, you know, that's how it was, it was described to me. And um, it defined me. I remember even prior to the ACT, every time I think it was the California Achievement Test came around that time of year in public schools back in the day, is that still a thing? I would start to hyperventilate because I would know that that day or the few days devoted to that, I would be failing because it wasn't my space that I necessarily um, thrived in. And I ended up in that kind of cell, that prison cell, that 12 foot by 12 foot pacing defined by those numbers, by the IQ, by the ACT scores. Come to find later on, I actually started thriving in my academic setting, but it wasn't until college when I could start choosing um, my the, the topics that interested me. I wasn't interested in whatever was being presented at the time, or I wasn't doing well in a frontal classroom setting, which I'm going to talk more about that maybe in another podcast my son of Eve. Actually, I'll just mention it now. I just posted on Facebook and got a lot of wonderful responses. My son of Eve has uh, dyslexia and ADD. He um, was diagnosed when we were in Israel and we, we, we took him in for testing when we were in Israel because he wasn't learning Hebrew. And what was happening was he was getting caught between two languages. And I'm no language expert, but I don't think it you didn't need to be an expert to figure out what they told us, which is pick a language. And so we ended up moving back to the States in no small measure due to that situation because he was getting lost in the language and he was feeling dumb. And the educational system there and here in America was really reinforcing that message. He um, came back and went to a school here that was like most schools, it was private school, but it was like most schools in that it really saw education primarily from the neck up. And we have a real challenge in our world today, especially in America, but around the world, I imagine, even in Israel, as those are the only two places I have experience with uh, public education. And that is that we educate from the neck up and we revere the neck up, meaning, you know, the brain, meaning one type of wisdom, one type of um of knowledge base in the Enneagram world, there's three primary. There's your head, there's your heart, and there's your, your body or your gut. So we know there are other wisdom centers, right? You've met people who have high IQ and low EQ, emotional um, intelligence. And Aviv um, that probably does have a high IQ. I don't know if we ever actually ever tested his IQ, but he um, he doesn't do well, as you can imagine, with dyslexia in a traditional classroom setting. And it just became this downward spiral where he was getting stuck in these routines uh, that didn't work for him. And then and then in his own head, he would create these stuck routines and these stuck stories, these repetitive messages that he would tell himself as anybody who's pounded all day, every day in a system that doesn't work for them, that puts them in a box that makes them stuck. And so we... Um, returned to an alternative educational system in Waldorf. If you know anything about Waldorf, it's been great for him because it really appreciates and incorporates the other wisdom centers, heart and body. So that's been a, a godsend. But his salvation has been dance. And that's what I posted on Facebook because he thrives when dancing. You can see the, the video of him there. He's 10 years old, but you know he just uh, he, he won a, his first competition um, this past week. He's, he was asked to be in a dance company um, this year, and he's thriving, and he won an award. And 
I don't say that because, you know, I sit here and brag about my kids. Um, I say that because he deserves that acknowledgement. He's in a system that doesn't recognize the body wisdom and the emotional wisdom that this young man has. And the stage does. The arts do it. He demonstrated up there. He was in his mastery. There was a flow. There was an unstuckness. And you could just see he goes to the classroom and there's this kind of stuck uh, Mohini tiger. And then, thank God, he's still young enough and malleable enough that we can take him out of that feeling of being in a cage and he can go out to the world stage and dance and break free and, and expand and experience all the habitat that Mohini just couldn't do. Most of us, all of us who are listening probably are older, and most of us hit a certain point in our life where we just become Mohini and we just recreate this stuckness in other areas in our lives. And so if we're stuck in one place, it doesn't mean we have to be stuck in all places. We shouldn't be. We should really challenge ourselves, do an inventory of our lives to see where are we stuck and how do we get unstuck. So in the Jewish mystical tradition, Kabbalah, stuckness is the ultimate sin, if you will. I, I hate the word sin. I, somebody recently just called me a dogmatic, um, you know, religious person. I'm like, you obviously don't listen to my podcasts or don't haven't followed my professional journey. Like there was nothing dogmatic when I uh, started a cannabis company to uh, create uh, social justice initiatives around uh, capitalism and conscious cannabis, conscious capitalism and, and five other disruptive, radically boundary pushing um, business ventures. No, I'm not dogmatic. And in my own personal life, I am a spiritual mutt. I'm I'm equally uncomfortable in everybody's religion and I'm practicing the best practice from wherever it comes. And so um, I just say that because I resist dogmatic. I resist organized religion. I don't like organized. I like disorganized religion. I like organized office space. I'm very into aesthetics and uh, my office is quite beautiful and clean, but I like that in my personal surroundings. I don't like it in my ideologies. I don't like it in my philosophies. I like disruption. It speaks to my soul, but it comes from many wisdom traditions and it's in Kabbalah, disruption. How do I prove that for any of my dogmatic brothers and sisters out there? Love you um, and support you, just not um, walking that path. Well, it comes from the Bible itself. The Bible itself is a disruption in the thought and spiritual evolution of history. We may look back on it now and feel like it's static at times, but partially that's only because we're looking at it through... Um, through a, a kind of a whitewashed lens. Sometimes I, I feel like we study or talk about the Bible or Torah. Like if you've ever watched a rated R movie on network television and they like dub out the best scenes, they cut it out or dub over it. And it's just like creepy and, and shallow and empty. Um, I feel the same way is true about the Bible. This is a radically disruptive text. One example, the Bible did not record its um, protagonists as perfect. In fact, it is the first recorded religious text in human history, according to Dennis Prager, to record the flaws of its leaders, to show the, the, the fallibility, the, the mortality, the flaws of human beings. The mighty Moses, the greatest mystic, according to Kabbalah of all times, was filled 
with flaws. Abraham and Sarah, the founders of this tradition, were they had so many mistakes. According to the text or the, the rabbinic tradition, there were 10 tests of Abraham and it could be argued he failed all 10 tests. But what this what made this man great, this woman great, and really the first entrepreneurs um, and founders, co-founders of a startup, which is what um, Judaism was at the time, was their ability to disrupt and to break free of the stuckness of the time. So what is stuckness in the Bible? It's idolatry. You know, we say idolatry as if it's like bowing down to totem poles, and that's the problem. According to the mystics, what idolatry is, is making um, the divine finite, putting a box around God and pretending that God, that the divine, that Yah is inside that statue. That's the problem, not the stupid statue, but getting stuck in our beliefs, believing that the means is an end. What does that mean? So I think it was the Beit Yaakov, which is a great, he's a great Kabbalist. He said, even a commandment, one of the most important things that's laid out for us in the Torah can become an idol. For instance, you'll oftentimes hear about religious people trying to uphold a commandment and hurting other people in the process. And I, and I was guilty of this um, I did this on multiple occasions where I worshipped, if you will, the commandment and not the spirit of the commandment. I didn't break bread because I was observant and keeping kosher way back when. And nothing against kashrut, keeping kosher. But when we start believing it's about the food and not about awakening within us a deeper capacity for compassion and connection, and then it takes us away from breaking bread because it's not kosher bread, so I can't participate in a family function or a celebration or a gathering, there's a thousand other things, then I have turned it into an end. It's not an end. It's a means. And so when we get stuck in the thing, it's a routine. It's a rut. It becomes um, static. We can do this with anything, with any good intention. I see it all the time in the yoga world where the practice becomes rote or in the meditation mindfulness movement where the meditation, the mindfulness becomes the end unto itself. Um, all kinds of charitable efforts and organizations have forgotten it's pointing us somewhere greater, divinity, God, goodness. But when we confuse that and we get stuck in the thing, we are in the space of idolatry. And we've got to break out of that. We're no different than Mohini with the whole wide world in front of her. And she's pacing back and forth and back and forth in this little space that she believes is her life, is her reality. Why is she in that 12 by 12 foot space stuck why is my why was why is aviv or was aviv stuck in that classroom fear fear because what the outside world is scary to that tiger when it has that open space around her and she doesn't know what's out there because she's never explored it she's just been in this little cubicle her whole life i see it with my dog my dog is terrified of everything his shadow and um, if he has too much space, he doesn't know what to do. So he'll go under the table and he'll 
kind of find refuge under there. Or when, when he was younger, we would crate him and people thought it kind of looked um, cruel almost to put a dog into a crate. Actually, it was liberating for him because he was scared by the, the great wide world out there. He was like Mohini. It was a little too late for him to uh, expand his horizons. Or Aviv, you know, in his classroom, feeling stuck, feeling small. He's in fear. And when we're in fear, our world contracts. Again, go back to that podcast on expansion. And we get smaller and smaller and our world starts reducing like Mohini. And so it's from this place of fear, right, that we start creating these rituals and adhering to them so tightly with, with uh, every ounce of our being. I work with a lot with Enneagram, uh, the Enneagram, as, as you know, and um, there are certain types that really struggle with structure and needing structure, especially I think of a, a lot of Enneagram ones, and especially if you know the Enneagram self-preservation ones, but also self-preservation types in general. Each Enneagram type has three fundamental drives. One of them is self-preservation, which is what it sounds like. So when we um, are self-preservation oriented, I'm not, um, but many, many people I work with are, when things disrupt our routines, our rhythm, our sense of control, our familiarity with the world, we start to feel out of control, sort of like Mohini, and we retreat, we get smaller, we make ourselves smaller, like just look at nature, that's what plants do, that's what animals do, it's either fight or flight, and if you're flight, you're, you're getting smaller, you're withdrawing, and so... You can see, you can see this happening to a person. You can see it happening into your, inside yourself. We've got to pay attention to that and look at the way that we have taken that fear and channeled it into false sense of security, like Mohini, pacing back and forth. This is our box. I'm okay, right? The ostrich, head in the sand. Everything's going to be okay. I'm okay. Nothing bad is happening. It's not chaos. So I want to talk a little bit about, okay, so how do we get unstuck? How do we deal with that? Because the defiant spirit is all about defying our nature, becoming supernatural, going beyond our nature. That was a couple of the podcasts I talked about. I wasn't just talking about Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman for any old reason. I was talking about these are projections of human beings at a particular time and area, you have to listen to it as to how Superman arose and why he arose to show that we can overcome our nature. We can overcome our circumstances. And even though that was fiction, it isn't fiction. The idea is not fiction, right? Don't go put on a red cape and blue tights. I mean, do whatever you want, no judgment, but don't go jumping off buildings and thinking that's going to be how you defy your nature, right? I'm talking about real life, real time, real ruts, real routines that turn into that rut, with the grave knocked out of both sides, and we're stuck. And we're in this place of idolatry that we no longer are connecting to the infinite, not up in outer space, but inside of ourselves. And we start believing, like me, that I was that ACT score, that I was what the world around me was saying about my intellect, my uh, IQ, that Aviv is what the world says because his um, genius isn't from the neck up, but it's in his body. And you start believing that crap and you start getting smaller and you get stuck and lost in fear. So how do we deal with it? It's 
what I want to start really moving towards in all my podcasts is more how, right? There's a lot of why, but how? Well, let's turn to um, Elizabeth Gilbert, famous author and author of many books. I just had read uh, recently Big Magic, great book. And she writes in the fall in Big Magic the following. Dearest fear, creativity and I are about to go on a road trip together. I understand you'll be joining us because you always do. Apparently, your job is to induce complete panic whenever I'm about to do anything interesting. I will also be doing my job on this road trip, which is to work hard and stay focused. And creativity will be doing its job, which is to remain stimulating and inspiring. There's plenty of room in this vehicle for all of us. So make yourself at home, but understand this. Creativity and I are the only ones who will be making any decisions along the way. You are absolutely forbidden to drive. I love that, right? Because what she's saying on so many levels, one of the things she's saying is you're not going to get rid of your fear. It's not going to happen. Um, I don't care how much mindfulness, meditation, yoga, breathing, tofu eating lifestyle you live, it does not matter. You will fear. And anybody who says they don't have any more fear, it's called spiritual bypass. They're using spirituality. They're almost weaponizing spirituality for something it was not intended to do. Spirituality is not intended to make the fear go away. You can't. You won't. I've had people say to me, B, I am not afraid of death. And then they'll tell me, you know, they're afraid of leaving their loved ones behind, whatever. But it's not true. I challenge anybody to tell me that there isn't a piece of you that isn't afraid. I'm going to have a whole podcast on doubt. But when we say we don't doubt, in many ways, we're disrespecting um, the divine. We're disrespecting the system. We're not appreciating the role of doubt, the opportunity doubt provides for us to be challenged, to overcome our doubt, to overcome our fear. But without that fear, then we have nothing, we have no growth here. There's no reason to be here. There's no way to sharpen the sword without that, that tension. And so it is a gift. Everybody doubts. I just read an article about Mother Teresa's um, doubt and how it really caused the world an uproar when she had written about her doubt and I just couldn't understand it. Why couldn't we accept that this woman or the Dalai Lama or the great mystics had doubts? They didn't get stuck in their doubts. That's the point. And that's what Elizabeth Gilbert is touching on. Is they're acknowledging their doubt. They're acknowledging it's in the car. It's along for the ride. But the power comes when we remind doubt it's not riding shotgun. It can be in the backseat and sit there and shut up. Right. Um, and our job is to continuously keep it quiet by acknowledging it, addressing it and driving forward in our lives. So mindfulness, just paying attention to when the, the doubts creep in, when the fear starts to well up, to be aware of it. That is the starting point before we get stuck or it starts driving the car and we end up in a place we didn't mean to go. Acknowledge there is fear and put it in the back seat and tend to it, but don't allow it to deter you from driving the car. So being mindful, paying attention, acknowledging it. Some other ways to really deal with the fear that will cause us to become Mohini, just pacing and stuck in our space. Breathing. 
I say it all the time because I do it all the time and I hope you do too. Some of you will say, hey, take some more breaths because when I talk on these podcasts and in person, I always go 50 miles an hour. Breathe. Now I'm not you know, in a place of fear right now, I'm in a place of expansion. So that's a different kind of breath. But when I'm in fear, like you, the first thing to go is the breath. It's gone. It's out the door. That's natural, right? When animals or humans are in fear, the heart starts pounding. You lose your breath. Shared it before. I'll share it again. I think of a child skinning her knee, coming to her mother. What's the first thing a mother or father would do? Pick up the child, pat her on her back, tell her, shh, it's going to be okay. Take some deep breaths, right? Helping her get out of her pain, out of her suffering, out of her fear. We need to do the same thing on our own lives. So when we start paying attention and we start getting anxious or overwhelmed by what we're feeling, breathe, right? Come back to the breath. Four by four breathing. If you don't know what that is, I have a whole uh, meditation on it, but four counts in. Holding in for four counts, exhaling for four counts, waiting for four counts. Breathing is a way back into our true self to dip into expansion, to break out of the routines and the ruts and the fear. Um, another great way to break out of the routines and the ruts, thinking about or learning about our default knowledge or wisdom center. So again, in Enneagram work, if you don't know yours, um, you can email me and we'll get you an Enneagram assessment and I can walk you through it and talk you through it. The um, Enneagram teaches there are three core places, your head, your heart, and your gut, as I mentioned before. Well, I'm a gut or body person. That's where I react. So when something happens, I get hot and angry. I can feel it in my body and I need to do my work of not the mantra of basically an Enneagram 8 or a body type is ready, fire, aim. So I need to not take action before thinking. I need to think and take action. So I need to shift my energy to my thinking center for an Enneagram 6, for instance, which is really this, it, it's the center of thinking. I see over and over in working with Enneagram 6 is that they just get stuck in the analysis paralysis space. I need to help them get into their body, into their gut, into movement. So for them, getting into their body is really the pathway. For me, getting into my thoughts, into my thinking space is the pathway. And the uh, feeling space, you know, we live in a world that's so conflicted about feeling. For the Feeling types, the last thing that they need to do, like an Enneagram 4, is necessarily to feel more. Sometimes, like Ariel is a 4, it's about feeling less, getting out of her feelings. Because feelings, although true to her, to a 4, aren't necessarily objectively true. And we know this because we were all teenagers. Teenagers live in this space where emotions, feelings are absolute truth. And the work to, with the teenager, I got three of them in my home right now out of the four kids. And the fourth one's going to be a teenager soon enough, is to help them back out of their emotions, to take back their power from their emotions, and to realize that just because you're feeling it doesn't mean it's true. And you don't have to accept it into your head and your heart and uh, your life 
as truth. So getting out of that and getting into maybe your thinking or your action center. We'll do a whole podcast on Enneagram Wisdom Centers, but I just want to come back to getting out of your habits, both out in the world, disrupting your patterns, and also on the inside of you, looking how you react. And I'm going to wrap it up with that because all of the defiant spirit is about stopping the reaction and starting the response. Reaction is unconscious. It's animalistic. It's natural. It's not bad. It's not good. It just is. But we are not here to live a life of just is that is unfolding without our participation, without our thinking, without our choice. We are here to choose, to choose our response to our circumstances. We choose our response to our life. And the only way to do that is to start choosing our way out of being stuck, of not being Mohini the tiger with the great big wide world out in front of us or within us. And we're only accessing a small percentage of what is possible out in the world or inside you and me. We are here to respond, to become responsible, able to respond to whatever it is, is presenting to us and break through anything and everything that is holding us back to break free and through those limits like little Aviv up on the stage, the world telling him this is who he is in this box, in this label, in this limit, and him getting up there and shattering that box saying, I am so much more than this stuck little label, idolatrous pattern, space, and place. I am Yah. I am divinity. Now watch me dance. Watch me soar. You must dance. You must soar each in your own way. That is the defiant spirit. I would love to get to know you. I would love to work with you. I'd love to offer you the Enneagram. Give me a shout um, and I will connect you and we'll take it from there. So keep tuning in. I think we're finding our rhythm in the defiant spirit. If you like this, please share it with somebody whom you think will benefit. Until the next time, uh, Baruch Levi B. And Shalom, Salam, Namaste. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Defiant Spirit Podcast. I would love to hear from you, to get to know you, to set up a discovery call, to see how we might work together. I work with clients across the world by phone or Zoom to discover deeper meaning and greater purpose at what I call life's tees. Tests, transitions, trials, traumas, tragedies. If you're at one of life's tees and you're looking for deeper meaning and greater purpose, then please reach out to me and I can help you discover, awaken, and live the defiant power of your spirit. Until we meet, Shalom, Salam, Namaste, peace.